My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. this episode, I look at systems, frameworks, ways of talking about and exploring regenerative ideas and how we can put things on the side of life for human design systems and things of that nature. So in this episode, I want to explore a little bit more of where I came to think about systems in language that I could talk to other people about. I think that actually I always thought in systems and particularly in big, broad pattern language and pattern understanding, but I only was able to articulate that previously through art and drawing and diagrams and doodles and conceptions in metaphor and story. And since a lot of the world is organized in a more verbal, dominant way, I had to find words and ways that people with more linear and logical leanings talked about systems. And then in some ways it came full circle. So one of the first people that I found to be really accessible for me, although I've heard for not everyone, in talking about systems that made sense of some things that I could see and observe in ecosystems, was David Holgram, who was Bill Mollison's co-originator of the codification of the knowledge that we call permaculture. And Holgram was influenced by his own readings and understandings of a lot of system thinkers. And so he distilled some of that knowledge down into things that made sense to him in terms of pattern reading and understanding of evolutions and changes in our systems. One of the things that particularly stood out to me in Holgram's work was reading it at the time was the characteristics of systems that had a large amount of energy available to them and how they responded to that. So he has a diagram in his book where he first describes a pre-industrial society and talks about it looks a bit like a pyramid from the food pyramid or other kinds of pyramid diagrams to illustrate something. Um, But on the bottom layer of the pyramid, 
there is a vast number, the big thick layer, primary producers. Because in pre-industrial societies, everybody produced something or knew how to produce something. So even the very elderly could maybe be sitting doing something in a small way that was part of the production of the needs of the whole. Maybe they were making fibres or weaving or something like that. Primary producers, the people who gathered the materials that other things could then be made out of. So whether they were going out and gathering materials in existing ecosystems and forests, so the hunter-gatherer wording that we think of, or whether in early agriculture they were growers or they were miners of maybe even as far back as Stone Age, there were miners of flint all the way up to miners of metals. So that was a big thing there that almost everyone knew how to produce or how to access materials for their basic needs within the culture. And then the next layer up where those people who made things, who kind of did the production out of the primary producers. And in these pre-industrial societies and small-scale communities, these might be some of the same people. And that's the interesting thing, I think. So you might have had someone who was also an artisan maker or a grower who was also a cook who could also turn fibres into footwear, all these kinds of things. But as activities, there was still a large number of people who were producers. The next layer up then is really around the what we would term governance today, but the council, the village council, the groups who helped guide and make decisions for the whole, where they took time meetings to deliberate and to decide things about maybe where winter grazing should be, when to stop and set up camp if they were nomadic, or later in at village cultures and small town cultures, they were making decisions for trade or housing or some of the decisions for the whole community. Then he points out that there might have been a tiny little triangle at the very top of the pyramid where you had the most respected leadership positions and those could potentially be occupied in a culture by a very small number of shamans or guides or elders of some kind whether they were clan chiefs or whether they were village mayors that kind of small number but the way that that drawing works is that in the pyramid everybody can see everybody else And everyone is connected to everyone else. And everyone probably has some ability to understand what everyone's job is because of the scale and because of the way that the energy or the resource flows happen within those pre-industrial systems. What he talks about with later systems, the one we currently are under, is the what happens when there's a huge energy source to a system. This metaphor then for human-evolved systems shows a very different picture. So if you imagine the first pyramid again, and that first band that was the primary producers who were 
growing food, mining, or gathering materials for buildings and so on. That shrunk and is a narrower band. Similarly, the band of producers, the factory workers, the makers of things is also the next band, also not that big a band. But what you have with the huge numbers of available energy is what's happening, say, in the economy of China just now, is you have more and more of the what's called the middle class or the consumer class swelling into, if you imagine the pyramid, it's like a huge belly coming out, bulging out of the edges of this band. And that belly is everybody that's not involved in primary production, not involved in making, that the kinds of work that gets done there is somehow made up work or busy work or work of of moving things about and moving them back and bureaucracies becoming larger and all this kind of thing. And part of it's about the commerce and the ever more complex ways of forming exchanges and banking and all of this kind of thing. And at the very top, you have a council again of some form. You have the government, but the government has shrunk in terms of where it can influence. If you imagine the control of that commerce is all coming from the private sector. So those that can make decisions for the whole are much smaller. And those that really have the power at the top are those that have concentrated the resources into the hands of the few. But the other thing that that diagram talks about is the idea that the top can't see the bottom anymore, that there's a massive disconnect from those trying to do governance. They can't see over the swollen belly, if you like, of this consumer group who are not making things and not producing things. And that's kind of a model that's understood in capitalism, but the way Holgram's understanding it is thinking about how systems behave in the form of energy. And so when we're looking at individual change and social change and where we try to address the fragmentation and the disconnect that has come in the structural changes that have come about in post-industrial late-stage capitalism cultures, there is something there that rises more and more, which is the conflict between people who can't see each other's position. And conflicts are not only about that, not only about not being able to empathize and understand and see across to each other's position, but also, as I grew up in Northern Ireland and I spent a lot of time throughout my lifetime trying to understand things about the roots of conflict. And I've read a lot on this and talked to a lot of people about conflict. And of course, I haven't come up with, unfortunately, magic solutions to what happens in conflict. But I, one of the things that I remember reading from a book written by one of the people who worked in and, and maybe was a founder of uh, the Glencree Reconciliation Centre, which is a peace and reconciliation centre in County Wicklow that was instrumental in bringing together opposing sides in conflicts, not only in Ireland, but elsewhere in the world, 
to try and bring about peace and reconciliation. And the writer of the book that I picked up somewhere and read was talking about all conflict having at its root a feeling of a challenge to identity, whether that's individual identity or also group identity, tribe identity, and cultural identity and national identity, all those kinds of forms of identity, that if you've formed your sense of yourself and your sense of your identity as a particular thing, and something in the system shifts and challenges your identity, it has a tendency then to have people move into polarity, move into sides of challenge, feeling their identities challenged causes a strong polarization. And I think this is really important as we try to work on decolonizing ourselves or language like that that I've been exploring in terms of oppression that exists in the world and the ways to acknowledge harm that has been done and not to walk away, but to also understand where you fit, where you sit within the identity. And one of the quotes that I may have said before in the podcast, but if so, it's worth repeating, is Paulo Freire, who is a theorist I admire from education. One of his books was called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and he was writing about how educational systems can empower or can exclude at a time when that was happening for him in first South America and later in America where he lived and worked and wrote the fact that the oppressed are fundamentally important in challenging their oppressors and that means challenging their identity of their oppressors because how he saw it was that the oppressor will never liberate the oppressed because they're in this little pyramid that Holgram talks about at the top and they don't see what's going on at the bottom through the inability to see over the bubble and so they cannot from that position liberate the oppressed they have no empathy or understanding of what's going on for the oppressed but the oppressed themselves can only liberate themselves if they understand themselves in positionality in understanding where they sit within the societal and cultural structures and so if they don't see that very talked about how a miner who was in South America who was at the bottom of a power system of being paid very little money to mine something in order to send it up a value chain so that the consumers could consume it within the system and the elites could capture the value at the top, that that same miner might be oppressed but might go home and oppress their wife or their children or someone else within their small family unless they understood themselves to be oppressed. And then Ferrari believed that if awareness of oppression, if you understood the systemic and the structural oppressions and you understood where you were within that, that then you could liberate yourself rather than try to climb up and become the oppressor and mimic the power over. And so where we are is very hard always to actually pinpoint. We live with a state 
that can be described as inherent continuous uncertainty. And although it seems, I think, for many people, obviously, in the COVID years, uh, in the climate deterioration and the biodiversity deteriorations, that we live in particularly uncertain times. But I think that those that study systems and particularly how a physicist would understand the world is that we live in a whole planetary system that is changing and adapting all of the time throughout very long stretches in history. And so that we actually live in inherent continuous uncertainty. What I'm trying to do in some of these podcasts and trying to do in some of the work that I do is find a way to make sense of where I stand, what ground I'm on in any given moment in a particular context and work on those hunches and connect things and try to make sense. And I recently came across a model that I definitely don't pretend to fully understand. It's making use of a lot of systems theory, particularly within organizations, leadership in particular. The person who started it, whose name's Dave Snowden, comes from a background in understanding the organic world, the living world, and philosophy. But he worked in IBM. And I just watched some of him talking and describing aversions that he had continued to evolve. He thinks he might have gotten to his final version of it recently in 2020. That is a kind of understanding of positionality in a given moment that helps you to decide what might your approach be in the system. Came across Holgram. I I find that he was saying something similar, that his sense was that as we reached peak oil, which experts have debated about, but they think we've reached peak oil at around two, year 2008. There is still oil in the ground and there are other fossil fuels. There's tar sands and coal and so on. And there are other peaks of extraction of the extractive economy still to come. Peak uranium, peak copper, peak lithium for electric car batteries. That as we reached these things, that the particularly the energy ones, would change the system into something different. And the way that Holgram saw that change coming was of a more distributed network-based system and less of a concentration of centralized power, which is the way that capitalism has evolved, is the centralization of power and resources and the marginalization of the periphery so that people on the periphery don't have access to resource. And Holgram saw a potential for if you had more energy distributed systems because you didn't have this concentration of this miraculous energy that has come from fossil fuels, that there's a change in the way society will structure itself back to a more pre-industrial level back to a more distributed network. Trying to figure out where we stand at any one moment is anyone's guess, really. But I think what Dave Snowden talks about in his understanding is looking at ways we could nudge systems that move us out of any area where we've gotten into catastrophic collapse 
or risk of chaotic collapse. We could move between different kinds of states, different kinds of understandings. He calls the system Kynifin, I think, C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. And it is a Welsh word that is referring to sensing of place, even habitat, what you're familiar, finding kind of an orientation, a moment and a place to stand or the ground and even the heritage you come from and where you can pause and say, from this place, where am I? And that that helps orientate you in a kind of an axis of whether you're completely confused or whether you could move into a state of being aware that you're confused um, and that there's different types of states that he, he tries to describe. Times when you are in a state where everything is simple and obvious and clear. So when you're in something where you 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 might move into that state from a different state, but you come to a moment where you say, well, maybe he gives the example of going from one country to another and figuring out they drive on the other side of the road. So it's something where everybody is going to act in what where I am and what I can do here is obvious to the vast majority of people. So I can tell that I should drive on the other side of the road, so I can categorize things, I can sense something quite quickly, quite easily. It's very obvious and clear, and I can respond to that by making sure I drive on the correct side of the road. And then there's a boundary between moving from there, where you might move into a new situation as well, like moving country, but when you move into something that is more novel and more unusual and doesn't have that simple, obvious practice. And he talks about it in the simple one, by the way, of that's where people use the term best practice because it's all very known and the best practice is accepted and known. But things change, like we're talking about continuous, uncertain states. And so you might move into a more state and that that, would then not work if you use best practice because it isn't as simple and obvious and uh, clear and you can't categorize it in the same way. And you have to basically check it out. You have to step in and try something. And some experts might know the answers in some ways and you could potentially phase shift and, and talk to experts. But in this state of novel and chaotic, he talks about the only response that will give you enough knowledge to act uh, is actually action itself. So you do actions in the new state, try something out, and then sense what's happening. And then you can respond because you get the feedback of what's going on. And so whatever you expected wasn't it wasn't obvious but you can have an answer that comes to you and the other one that he then talks about is when you're in a really complex situation and a complex situation is like the difference he talks about the, between building a car and understanding 
the Amazon because there are lots of things in building a car, but they basically have answers that are fairly linear and logical, whereas understanding the Amazon is much more interconnected, something that you act in some way might change things, but it's not clear what the cause and effect is. And so this is more of figuring out and experimenting with parallel probes, lots of different things that don't have to go in any linear and logical way. You're not trying something out and getting a clear cause and effect act answer. You're actually looking more at probabilities or propensities. What's the disposition of this to act. And so you get into bigger patterns that you can see and you are trying to probe and sense and respond. So you rather than acting first, you're sending out in a way lots of multiple different probes because you otherwise if you if in this context in a complex context you apply something that seems to you obvious and clear or is best practice somewhere else and this is where humans have been getting ourselves in a lot of trouble in not trusting and understanding complexity of systems something that our previous indigenous ancestors had a lot more intuitive understanding and long-term built-up knowledge of constantly changing systems and so if you try to apply a best practice from a simple, you'll end up in trouble. And so what can happen there is that you have complete blind spots. But what's interesting in the complex world is the way that things change in moments where you can, when you're doing your checking something out, probing in multiple different ways, you can create enabling constraints you can set up circumstances so that you can probe in lots of different ways, so as you can sense and so as you can response, respond. And this is, he's got a word for this, he calls ex-aptive, a bit like adaptive, but ex-aptive, where brand new ideas, if you like, or brand new learning, repurposing of responses. So the way you respond here isn't going to be the same old way. It's going to be something quite new and something's, in ecosystems respond this way over time to big changes. He gives the example of dinosaurs growing feathers that were used, they think, for attraction and display, but then some conditions change and you get a radical repurposing of feathers and you end up with flight or other kinds of non-linear jumps from something and it usually within a stressed environment of some kind. So the stress in trying to understand a complex system can cause innovation, if you like, in complicated states. So that's somewhere between these. It's not a simple state is obvious and clear. A complicated state is something where good practice could work, but not best practice. You're just trying to use a good practice that will probably lead to a good enough outcomes. And this is probably the one that he talks the most about. Experts may know something, they may have some good practices, um, but they don't yet have the answer. 
And so they, this is one that he talks about using the sense of analysis for. So sensing first that you're not in a clear situation, you're in something more complicated, sensing it, and then analyzing it, and then maybe finding some specialists that understand some of the things that you've been able to sense and let that expertise come in and be analyzed. But one of the things that I find really interesting is also just the idea of moving between them altogether when you're in the middle of something. So if you're in a complete crisis of chaos, then using constraints to give yourself more options downstream to understand what's going on and being aware you're confused and admitting that there's just a lot of parameters, a lot of changes, and you are confused. And he gives the example of Jacinta Ahern in New Zealand when COVID began of just immediately putting in a severe lockdown as a constraint to give herself more options downstream. And that allows her to move between that crisis state into one where there's a complex state or perhaps even by distributing decision-making, it could move into an exit into a complicated situation and, and then the use of experts can be helpful. But he also, I find this really interesting that he talks about using times when it's when it isn't known and when you can't choose an expert because there's not enough understanding of the complications or the complexity that you're dealing with that then you can um, use competing experts or introduce experts and quasi-experts and cover all sorts of bases and really deliberately creating estates of paradox so that emergent understanding can come. And he also talks about one that I suppose I connect to a lot is the use of the wisdom of the crowd. And he's used this in big systems um, using what they are looking for is weak signal detection or weak signal indicators, the kind of outliers. So if you have a lot of, if you have a big crowd and you have a lot of data points and you start essentially using them to give your sensing and your situation analysis so that they can figure out what we should do next, not what I should do next. And this is really interesting for multiple complex systems of the wisdom of the crowd is something that really the birth of the internet and other things has allowed us. I see people attempt to use that when they can't figure something out and they, they say, I'm going to ask the internet or I'm going to ask the hive mind, something Rob Hopkins often does on Twitter, the writer of What If and the Transition Movement. What's the dominant wisdom of the crowd? What's the minority wisdom of the crowd? And what are the outliers? People who can spot things that are coming, which I also find interesting. I don't remember which philosopher said this. It might have been Plato. But I remember hearing that a definition of a scientist is someone who tells you, in, in, his, in Plato's estimation, someone who tells you about the present because they can tell you something that's tangibly there in front of you in the now through evidence. And a historian is someone who tells you about the past because they look back and interpret the stories over and over in new ways and they tell you something about the past. 
but artists are people who tell you about the future, according to, I think, Plato. And I, I find that interesting because I see a call at the moment in Ireland for creative climate actions and a fund to call in creatives. And that's not something that I've seen a government do before in problem solving or in trying to look at what can happen these different states of not knowing what to do to knowing and how to to probe and how to sense in transition uh, adaptation which is a lot of the kind of work that I end up being in community is when at those early adopters of trying out new things that there's often a lot of artists who are moving into the space of sense making trying to understand things from a new angle and so all of us working together in the crowd, all of us that can try to do this in, in the systems we're working in, perhaps allows us emergent sense and new forms of ways of being, new forms of governance or government, new forms of dealing with the emerging polarities and conflicts as identities are challenged between these different states and help us to move from confused to at least aware confused and having complex acts of knowing so that we can try to understand. And in one last thing that I was listening to Dick Snowden talking about was not only are we in a state where everything is constantly changing, but one of the ways in which we adapt, even at the organic level, is the decomposition of our bodies, of everything, of organic matter into a granulated state, into a you know allowing for unique recombination of our and creation of of formation of different organisms. What is coming forth? What is growing? Energy of early summer in the networks and in the systems that I'm part of, and what are the non-linear jumps we can make, and what can we do to move between these different boundary zones and domains and manage ourselves. He talks about the deliberate introduction of randomness to induce creative responses, other kinds of techniques that get fitted to the different ways to nudge and make many small things bring about big changes. And that is something that I think is happening all around us. We're not necessarily making the change. We're adapting to it and what horse we bet on in our adaptation. And I think that having some understanding of systems, however you come to them, and as I say, a lot of the time I come back full circle to my artist self and to pattern language and pattern understanding and drawing and Something I do now when listening on Zoom calls, as we're probably many people are on Zoom calls still, that one of the things that I do when listening to meetings is draw out some of the patterns that I'm hearing, some of the repetitions, some of the macro reflections of what's happening in the wider world that are then happening in the micro cosms of a particular grouping, and then trying to see where is the ground under me? Where is my sense of place, my habitat, my niche? Or just simply where's a place to stand 
at any one time to know where to act.